Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Today, I got an amazing author who is very well known in the US. He is the author of Our Search for Belonging, also Everyday Biases and Reinventing Diversity. I got him personally recommended from one of our other really good guests. So I'm really excited to get Howard Ross in with me today. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time. That's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So Howard, you've written these different books. Can you tell me a little bit about like what are they about and how did you how did you get into looking into biases and so on? Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I've been doing this my whole life. Actually, before we start, I would just like to send my um, my good wishes to all of the folks in Northern Europe, where you are, and, and really around the world as we as we deal with this shared tragedy together. And uh, you know, it's 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 actually a great. Um, platform to use to talk about what we're talking about because you know certainly in most of our lifetime we've never had an example of the need for global cooperation and understanding like we have now so um, and that's really been driving my whole life you know I grew up in a, a family of um, uh, a Jewish family our family had immigrated from Eastern Europe and we suffered enormous loss during the Holocaust and so I grew up right in the shadow of that I was born in January 1951 just you know a few years after the end of the Second World War and so I grew up in, in a family which we were told growing up that uh, terrible things can happen when you're different and you have a responsibility to do something about it. So um, I got involved in civil rights work here in the United States when I was a teenager um, and then uh, became an educator and, and did that for about 10 years and, and then went into consulting. And very quickly, as I started doing organizational consulting, this whole notion of diversity consulting uh, emerged. This was probably the mid-1980s. And uh, it was like the two parts of my life came together. And so um, I've spent the last 35 years uh, doing that work, uh, diversity in organizations. And, uh, and, and in the early days, you know, a lot of the work we did around diversity and inclusion was uh, very much in the us versus them kind of domain. It's like, you know, beat on people until they get the, you know, until they get the right attitude or until we can change them. And um, I began to recognize that there was something fundamentally flawed in that approach. And that was that most of the things that we do that differentially impact other people, most of the biases that we have are actually unconscious. And so I began to study um, the science behind that and uh, some of the incredible research that was coming out of the 1990s and beyond and social science research and things like that and began to realize that, that we really understand the way people think and that so much less of it is rational than we think it is that we needed to change our approach and to, to focus on it in a different way. And so that led me into the work on unconscious bias. And, and then the last stage was really um, beginning, continuing the research to realize that there's a whole nother human dynamic beyond bias. And that is this need to fit in, this need to belong to the groups that we're a part of that, that can lead to the kind of tribalism we're seeing in our, in our lives today. Um, and so that led to the belonging work. So, you know, I like to say I never set out to do most of my things. I just sort of followed my curiosity. And sometimes I feel like a two-year-old uh, running downhill trying to stay on my feet. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. <clears throat> so many interesting things and like really psychology is so fascinating. Like what is it that drives us and why are we doing this stuff? And I think the exactly. whole the whole belonging is, is so central. Like often we talk about wealth and health and 
yeah, different aspects, but belonging is so central to like our health and also our mental health. Yeah, so, exactly. So exactly. what is what is belonging for you and this? Well, I'd like to say it in the context of the diversity conversation, I'd like to say it this way. And that is that, um, you know, it's been said for many years that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being allowed to dance. So, you know, when we um, uh, when we're doing our work in diversity, we often um, are looking at representation, you know, who's being invited to the dance. And then we say, well, how do we get those people engaged? For me, belonging takes it to a next, the next level, which is who gets to choose the music? You know, can I really be part of even choosing the music that's played? In other words, can I be really have a say in the way our organization or our society functions? Now, when we feel a sense of belonging, it usually has a number of different qualities. We usually co-identify with people in a certain way. Uh, you know, as we're looking at this from the standpoint of what's going on around us with with covid right now uh, with the virus we can see that you know when when we hear things that's going on in our country it affects us differently than we hear things that are going on around the world it's not like we don't care about the things around the world but it's just more personal to us because we have that 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 sense of belonging and i think that that we're all looking for that you know from the time we're little in our own families we're looking for that place where we really feel at home where we really feel like we can be ourselves where we have a sense of interdependency and the sense that what happens to you um, is likely to happen to me or could very well happen to me. And I think all of those qualities are part of that sense of belonging that we, that we really deeply crave at a level. I like to say that um, when we look at Maslow's hierarchy, that, that Maslow was wrong, that belonging may be the most primary human need. Yeah. Yeah, I, I started the belong. what was the, the guy behind Homo Deus and Sapiens mm-hmm. in his yes, new uh, book? Our, he, yes, yeah. no, uh-huh. He also talks more about belonging yes, and how to absolutely. be part of a community, how that's so important for us. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are starting to talk about it now. Brene Brown, of course, has done some beautiful work around it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges we have today with belonging and, and what can we do about it? So if we started briefly on like some of the challenges with belonging. Well, I think that, that, that very clearly we're in a we're in a time of um, extreme polarization and tribalism. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's a real problem. And, you know, when I wrote my last book, I entitled it, our search for belonging, how our need to connect is tearing us apart. And people said, well, that, that seems sort of contradictory, you know, but that's exactly the point. You know, we, we belong to each of our groups, but by belonging to each of our groups, we inherently sometimes can negate the other group. And certainly we see that politically in what's going on now, not only in the United States, but around the world, you know, these, these hardened points of view. Um, it's no longer, we, you know, used to be politically, most countries lived in a bell curve where you'd have people on the extremes and most people in the middle, the issue by issue, we would collaborate or, or agree mm. with different people. Now we've become like a dumbbell curve where everything's on the end and nothing's in the middle. And, um, and there's no way to reach people. And so I think that, that this notion of where we fit in in the world and who we fit in with is, is really important and, um, and particularly important now. And I think it's, that's added to by the, the difference in media. You know, it used to be that we went to central location. We all got the same basic news. Now we go each to our own news sources, our, you know, our podcasts, our um, news feeds and the like. And we're getting one particular view of the news that's completely different in a lot of cases from the other side. So so there are lots of reasons why in this world we're fragmenting more at the time we need to come together the most. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that resonates with a lot of the listeners here, at least that many of them see themselves more as global citizens. Of course, they are also looking at their own country. But me personally, I've been tra- I have been fortunate enough to travel, and of of course, I'm somehow proud to be Dane. But I see myself much more as as kind of like a global citizen, and I've often been curious about how that we're willing to help 
so much in Denmark when we then look at people that are having such a hard time? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because as, as you and I spoke about off camera, um, uh, you know, I've spent some time in Denmark and, and um, you know, you've gone through an interesting shift, not just in Denmark, but in lots of parts of Northern Europe in that um, your cultures were, were very homogeneous for many, many, many years. And so there was this tight, you know, relationship of, you know, Denmark's for the Danes. And, and when I was there, one of the first times I was there, which is probably now because 10, 12 years ago was when the immigration issue was really starting to heat mm -hmm. up. And, and, um, and I was talking to one of the folks from the Denmark, the Danish Institute for Human Rights, who had brought me over there to give a speech. And he said that um, the, this was, this was, I think, just before the, the crash in 2008 or 2009. And, um, and he was saying that unemployment was so low at that point that that was really becoming a problem in the country. They couldn't find workers. And, yeah. uh, and yet there was a strong anti-immigrant feeling. And, and he would say to people, well, but we need these people to work. And they say, no, Denmark's for the Danes, meaning Denmark's for white people. And so, yeah. you know, often um, even in countries that have as great a sense of belonging as you, when, when another force or another group of people is introduced, you can see that break begins to occur. Yeah, makes sense. We definitely had problems with immigration as well in Denmark, where we had one of the politicians coming from a Middle Eastern country that called called us uh, falafel hippies. <laughs> uh, so, so, so basically, that uh, we had a lot of immigration from the Middle East with wonderful people coming in, but we didn't make sure that they learned Danish or anything else. So we didn't really get them got them integrated because we were so like, oh, we can't demand that they learn Danish and so on. That's right. um, so kind of like the negative of being too hippie, being like, oh, let them just live as they want. And that just created so many problems because their children then didn't, had a harder time in school and so on, like for good reasons. So it wasn't, wasn't because they're bad people or anything else. We just didn't put the structure in to really help them be part of the society. And that That's has right. caused a lot of problems when you look at the statistics in, in problems in, in people from, from those countries in the world. And you can see you can see how that happens because then what happens is you've got this tribe that's over there that's separate from the other tribe, and now and now that tribe inherently, because they're visitors to your country, mm. gets seen as less than by a lot of people, and the fact that they're seen as less than begins to create energy in them because people resent being treated as less than. So that resentment plays out, which creates even more of a division, and you can see in that case how that tribalization happens and how it deepens so quickly if we're not careful. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So what can we do about it? So all of the people that are concerned, that's all like uh, the Brexit, and we see politicians that are more on the one side of just kicking out immigrants and so on, like gaining more power, and and you might be a bit concerned, like that's not the way that you think the world should be going. Like, what what would you recommend a person to do? Well, I think you know, just just I'll get there for sure, but just uh, one other distinction I think it's creating to create is that I think you pointed to it's at the heart of these differences really across the planet, and that is the dip, the pull between nationalism or nativism versus globalism, and I think that you know we've got this inexorable. I, I think it's an inexorable movement on the planet towards globalism, and and you know we're seeing so boldly um, right now where where this pandemic is concerned. Whether we like it or not, we are part of a global community. You know, mm. the, the 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 virus knows that. Human beings think you can stop people at borders. Viruses know better. You yeah. can't stop a virus at the border. And so, you know, if we if we, for example, look at this and and what if the world right now was really collaborating, fully collaborating on dealing with this pandemic? If we were sharing information. If we were sharing resources. If we were, you know, getting testing, you know, freely across countries and, and sharing that data and, and all these kinds of things, you know, how much better off would we be? And, and there are certain times when I think that that's essential. And then at the same time, we don't want to lose our 
lose our identities. And so, um, you know, I think depending upon which emphasis you have and where your pain point is, you make a one direction or another. Um, I don't think there's any question that ultimately because of the nature of, of people's movement on the planet and because of the nature of technology, we're going to be ultimately a global, you know, a global community um, that over time. But, you know, as a classic example of two steps forward and one step back, you know, as you push into that, you're going to have some people who are going to react and say, no, this is my country. And, you know, Dan- Denmark for the Danes or America for America, make America great again or all this kind of stuff is, is really about saying, no, don't forget that, you know, we have specific needs and we have a specific identity that we want to maintain. So I think one one way that I found is so important when we're dealing with any of these kinds of issues is to first understand it, um, you know, to, to really understand what it is about human beings that has us need this and and you know in the earlier work that i did and still do um on unconscious bias for example one of the great breakthroughs that we had was in the recognition that bias is just natural to human beings and and we're not going to make bias go away human beings actually need bias in order to function in the world now it could be toxic and dangerous or it could be constructive and awareness building but one where you know and, and so we want to keep it on the positive side of course um, but we have to be aware that we're never going to be bias free. And I think similarly, when we look at what we've learned about human beings and the human brain and the human mind um, around this issue is that we know that people will tribalize. We will always find an us versus them because it goes back to our earliest survival techniques, being out in the savannah and looking at that group of people under the, around the waterhole and determining quickly, is that is that them or us? Because if you made the wrong decision, you died. Mm. So you get killed. So so um, so we have a tendency to do that. So I think step one is to understand the way we think and understand that we do have this tendency to divide people around us. Uh, then the second is to try to do everything we can to understand that other group. That doesn't mean agree with them necessarily or even like them, but to understand, to try to understand from their perspective where they're coming from. Um, you know, when I wrote my book, I went on and interviewed over 100 people who voted for the opposite political leader that I voted for because I really wanted to understand where they're coming from. And, and what I found was that even though I may not like that person, um, a lot of these people who voted for them were not, were not particularly unlikable people. They were, in fact, some places really good people, people who I've developed long-term friendships in some cases with, but had a very different world perspective or a very different sense of values. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean that you just say, oh, well, we see things differently. There's nothing wrong with fighting for what you believe in, but there's a difference between fighting for an idea and demonizing another person. It's one thing to say you and I disagree about gun rights. For That's just one issue example. It's something else entirely for me to say you're one of those kind of people, meaning that, you know, I'm no longer even interested in you. And, and, and I think this is the real challenge that we have. And so I think uh, the third thing, so the second thing would be to understand those dynamics. The first thing to understand those dynamics. The second thing to see, you know, how we, how we can try to understand where they're coming from. And I think the third thing is to be able to distinguish between the issues you're talking about and humanity of the people you're dealing with, because those people may be, in fact, good people who just see the world very differently or have some wounding from an experience or something's happened to them. Um, And then I think we can begin to um, reach out to people um, who we can find in that middle. Um, and, and again, that doesn't mean necessarily an agreement, but, you know, I'm not going to pretend, for example, that if I were with, I don't know if you know these names, but they're, you know, people like David Duke or Richard Spencer, who are virulent white supremacists in the United States, who, you know, David Duke was the head of the Ku Klux Klan for a while, you know, so I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to reach somebody like that and have any kind of mutual contact, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's just not realistic, but there are a whole lot of folks who, 
might be inclined in that direction, who I might still be able to reach, whose humanity I might be able to touch on, um, who, who could try to understand me in the same way. And we may be able to soften that divide. Even if we don't reach each other, we could at least soften that divide. You know, I have one person who um, I met on social media through Twitter a number of years ago when he he'd actually trolled me on a tweet that I uh, sent out. And I said to him, which I often say, I'd be glad to have a civil conversation with you about this, if you'd like. And we've, we've created a four-year relationship. And um, and he said to me at one point, he said, you know, I know you're probably frustrated because you probably think you haven't changed my mind about much. But you've changed my mind about one thing very important. You've changed my mind about liberals. You know, I used to think they were all kind of reactionary idiots. And I can see that you're a great person and you really care about these things. And I respect that, even if I don't always agree with you. And, and I said this, similar things to him. So so I think that that, you know, those are a few things right off the top that we could that we can do to start addressing some of these issues. Yeah. yeah I think that makes a lot of sense as well, like really trying to understand other people. Yeah. Yeah. What a concept, right? <laughs> <laughs> if, if only we had learned that earlier. I found at least that uh, most of the people that are not as happy about getting immigrants into Denmark often haven't met that many immigrants. So they don't know anyone personally. So it's like often, so in Denmark where I grew up, I grew up in a city and outside of the cities were often where you would say there were more racist people uh, because they didn't know as many. And that's of course a generalization as well. There were plenty of people that were not, but they just potentially didn't have any friends that were from another country. Actually, actually that's some data behind what you're saying here in the United States. Anyway, I know that there's been some research that shows that levels of racism are higher in areas where there are very few people of color. Very similar. And if you think about it, it makes sense because if you don't meet people individually, all you have are stereotypes and caricatures of those people. And so you get the generalized stereotypes and you begin to believe that about those people. But when that person is your next door neighbor or the parent of one of your children's friends or somebody who works side by side with you and helps you out on things or or your, um, you know, your food delivery person or other your mailman or whatever else, then all of a sudden it's no longer your you know, an African-American or a Muslim or whatever the particular case is, it's no, you're, you're John or Muhammad or Bill or whoever it is who I know. And I, I know you have children like I have children and I know you, you, you want to be successful in life just like I want to be successful in life. And I know you have kindness in you because I've seen it. And, and so all of a sudden those stereotypes begin to melt away. And we, we found when we did the bias research that one of the very best ways to minimize people's bias is by, um, by having them be exposed to exemplars of the particular groups they have bias on. So here in the United States, we do that through things like Black History Month, where you learn about famous African-Americans, which balances out some of the negative stereotypes. And I'm sure, you know, similar dynamics in in your culture as well. Hmm. So what are some of the most common biases that we are not aware that we have, but that we can work on? You know, I think that that one of the most common biases is what we sometimes call confirmation bias, and um, and that is that once we've decided something about somebody, we will tend to listen for affirmation of that belief that we had. So, um, it's a uh, it's a little bit like, um, you know, any any of us have seen it happen. You know, you've got a friend who who's angry at somebody else, and you know, and they, and you know, the person's a nice person. You don't know why they're so angry, but this person has it in for them for some reason. And so then this person does something really nice for this, the, the person who they, they're demonizing does something really nice for them. And what's the response? Well, they were only trying to get me to like them. Hmm. You know, it's like, we'll always find some way to, um, to justify. And, and, and so this confirmational bias tends to show up in that way. We'll tend to, uh, affirm sometimes it's called, Gleb likes to call it the halo and horns effect. 
So, you know, if we, if we, with, with the halo effect is I like you, therefore I'm going to look for and see the good things about you, but I'm going to sort of absolve or ignore the negative things about you. The horns effect is the opposite. If I don't like you, I'm going to see all the negative about you and I'm going to ignore all the positive about you. And, and, you know, we certainly see that playing out politically right in front of us. And, and all of us, I, I have to admit, I can get sucked into it sometimes as well. It's very easy to do. And, and when you tap that into the media structure we were talking about, when you have a media source that only shows the positive or only shows the negative, then that reinforces it as well. Mm. So, so I think that, that that's really important that we recognize that that bias is one of the most, the most, uh, important that's there i think the second uh, another one is that's really go ahead please yeah so just with that something we could do very concrete is for example with the media because i think it is one of the big problems is like you see your feed a lot of people get that from facebook instagram or somewhere else or linkedin and you only get from the people that you agree with so one thing could be following one or two people that have clearly the opposite opinion than you to kind of get a more balanced point of view and then actually try and read some of the stuff that that you probably don't like, but to, mm-hmm. to get a more balanced view. I, I agree. In fact, I consciously do that. You know, I have a feed, my news feed has, you know, but from both sides of political spectrum, you know, I'm not saying sometimes I have to like hold my nose as I read one aspect of it or I want to throw, throw something at the TV, but I'll watch here in the United States. I'll, I'll watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox news and BBC, you know, at different times, try to get kind of different perspectives. Um, and, and I think that's really important as much as we can. And, and to be willing to acknowledge at times that the sources that represent our points of view uh, can be propagandizing as well. We don't see it as much, of course, because we agree with the propaganda, but that doesn't mean it's not propagandizing. Nope. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You had a second bias? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that uh, that another bias, I think, is to is uh, how do I characterize it, is to know yourself enough to know where your own personal triggers are. So, you know, so for example, we, we each have our own life experiences and, and we carry the, the, the wounds of that. We carry the joy of that. You know, it's all in us and we will gravitate towards things that we resonate with. So if I meet somebody who has a life story that's very similar to mine, um, I'm going to be more resonant with them by their nature. I remember one of my early friends and business partners um, uh, spent some time as a um, admissions officer at a major college or university and here and it's one of the Ivy League colleges here and and he said that they did a study one time and they found that as these admission officers would read the essays and the applications from the students all of whom were very smart as Ivy League school you know smart kids apply um, they would tend to gravitate like he liked music so anybody who, who's a musician he would gravitate towards another friend of one of the people who was there was somebody who had a story where he had pulled himself up by his bootstraps came from a poor background and and so anybody who had that story he went right to you know and so i think we have to be we have to be aware of that um, if there's nothing wrong with that it's a natural tendency to to you know affiliate with people who are similar than you but you, we want to be careful all the time that 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 doesn't get in the way of our being able to be open to people who are different from us as well it could be something as simple as if you're somebody who's a clean desk person you know kind of a really organized person uh, versus somebody who's more organic which is what those of us who are disorganized call ourselves um you know you walk into somebody's room and they've got a messy desk you immediately assume that they're not you know they're not as competent where it's that may not be the case at all um they may be just as or even more competent they just go about it in a different way but those biases tend to play themselves out so i think understanding ourselves is important is an important part of understanding our biases Got it. Yeah. And so how do we work with, so biases are often coming from some kind of data. The problem is when the biases are 
too wrong or we trust the bias too much. That's right. That's so that's how, how do we balance that? So like, when do we know that this bias is helping us? And when do we know this could actually be hurting us? So simple examples where I take something positive. Um, you think that Eastern Europeans, in my experience, are harder working. Mm -hmm. So all the Eastern Europeans I work with were really hardworking. That's not the same as all Eastern Europeans are hardworking. Exactly right. And same thing as I'm not coming from a rich family. And that meant that I probably, for some people would think I had a lot of hunger to learn new things and, mm -hmm. and get that. Where I have met several people also coming from a similar background, being more hungry. And I met rich parents that were telling me, I don't know what to do with my kids because mm -hmm. I've showed them the entire world. They don't care about doing anything. That's right. But there are plenty of kids coming from rich families that are super hardworking yeah. and super hungry. Right. Well, I think, I think one of the things we have to do is we have to be able to distinguish between archetypes and stereotypes. Um, you know, so if I were to say to you, for example, are men taller than women? The answer is obvious. On every, in every, virtually every culture on the planet, statistically, men are taller than women, right? But if I were to say to you, is every man taller than every woman? You just have to look at Tom Cruise and any of his wives to know that it's not true. You know, mm -hmm. that sometimes women are taller than men, you know. Um, the challenge is that we take archetypes and we easily turn them into stereotypes. So it, it may very well be true that culturally, certain cultures tend to be more driven and more work oriented by their nature. Um, it doesn't mean that every person from that culture fits that bill. And I think one of the things we need to always be willing to do is to, first of all, acknowledge our biases. And, and it's interesting because one of the things that happened when we started to say to people, you know, look, we understand you'll always have bias. We're not going to make bias, all biases go away. Sometimes people said to me, well, aren't you letting people off the hook? And no, we're not letting people off the hook. We're just saying, we're not saying you're not responsible for them. We're saying they're going to be there. So that means that rather than pretend they're not there, or rather than pretend you can make them go away, own them, take responsibility for them, you know? Um, and what we found is that it's much easier for people to do that if they're not going to be demonized for having them. So once I take responsibility for my bias, then the next step is to say, let me check it out. Is it true? Is it accurate? Is it accurate for most people or all people? So the examples that you gave are good ones. You know, we might say, you might say that if you did a study, a social science study, that we find it is accurate for most people of Eastern European descent. Not, I'm not saying it is or not. I haven't seen that study, but let's say mm -hmm. it is. Because it is true that they have a stronger work ethic and that it comes from the fact that a lot of them grew up with very little and they had learned they had to scrape in the cultures that they were a part of. And you have a whole explanation for that. Um, okay, so it's true for most people, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to hire somebody from you know, an Eastern Denmark. European background. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean I'm not going to hire somebody from Eastern Europe who, who, who's going to be lazy. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to hire somebody who's not from that culture who works harder. But it just means that as a pattern, that's true. And sometimes those patterns are really valuable and sometimes they get in the way. So it's that self-examination, I think, that's really important. And um, sometimes we can help by finding uh, exceptions to the rule and say, are there any exceptions to this rule? Because if there is an exception to the rule, then the rule is by its nature not as concrete, not as solid. And we have to take it as sort of an inclination rather than a rule, which is a very different way of looking at things. Yes. So how do we, how do you f figure out if that bias is helping you or serving you in being faster at, because you have limited time in yeah. finding the right people and yeah. when it's actually hurting you and just as important that you are being unfair to people. So let's, let's say the opposite example. So say that you think Eastern Europeans are hardworking and you think Italians are not working as hard. Mm-hmm. 
that's not the same thing as that true. I know many Italians working extremely hard. Of course, of course. I also know that if I'm in a warmer country, then I like to relax a bit more. So well, it's also something about where you are, why some of those archetypes are coming from. You know, there's a whole anthropological way of looking at this that, that is built on the very thing you talked about, how much climate has impacted people. For example, Northern Europeans tend to be very time sensitive because if you're in cold climates where if you don't get the crops in the ground at the right time, and freeze comes, you starve to death, time becomes very important. Whereas if you're in more equatorial climates, which are much more moderate temperatures, you know, put it in today, you put it in tomorrow, who cares? You know, so, so time becomes more fluid. And, and it just is one example of that. So I think you're right. Um, I think that, I think that, you know, we need to be willing um, to recognize that that because there's a self-justifying phenomenon as part of this, that we will tend to want to gather data to support our already point of view, um, that it's very hard on a consistent basis to recognize our own biases without getting some external input, without people, without mm. turning to people and saying, are you seeing anything in me that I'm not seeing in myself? And to be open to that kind of feedback. And one of the things that we do, for example, when we're working in organizations um, with organizational leaders around the biases is to help them create feedback mechanisms. So, you know, a leader, let's say a white male leader will, will meet with the, um, with a group of women or will meet with a group of people of color or LGBTQ people or whoever else and and create the kind of relationship where we give honest feedback to each other and say gee you know and they might come back and say you when you made this decision i don't think you intended it but you probably didn't realize that this really affects the women in a different way than it affects the men and let us tell you how and then that leader needs to be willing to come back and say you know what i made a mistake you know i or i want to modify what i did or i want to change what i did or at least to explain why they're going to continue to do it anyway. But I think that that kind of open dialogue and, and narrative and vulnerability um, is really what creates the kind of flow that we need to be able to address these things. And, and then, of course, the other is to be able to apologize. And, and this is where I think that the demonization of bias has often inadvertently contributed to locking some of these things in place. Because if if I do have a bias, let's say, towards a group that's that's highly sensitive to them, you know, let's say a group of people of color or something, um, and I make a mistake, um, and I'm afraid that by acknowledging I made that mistake, I'm going to be branded forever a racist, um, then I'm just going to keep it to myself. But if, if I can come out publicly and say, you know what, I just want to own that I realize I made a mistake. And I said this thing the other day, and uh, in retrospect, um, I want to really thank some friends of mine who came, brought it to my attention, how it might have been perceived differently by other people than myself. And I want to apologize for saying it that way. And, and you know, and, and again, anytime something like this happens, please come to me and give me feedback. Well, then, in my mind, that person gets elevated because, you know, they've demonstrated that willingness to take responsibility and to move in a more positive direction for themselves. But all too often what happens is uh, once we've said it, we now have to go into hiding and shame drives us even more deeply unconscious. And then the person who makes us feel bad, who makes us feel guilty, even generates more anger towards them because they're making us feel bad. This is where this notion, I'm sure you're familiar with this notion of white fragility comes in, you know, what's been called white fragility. And that is, you know, that, that it's, it's gotten to be worse you know, calling somebody a racist is worse than being a racist, you know, because because it, it hurt. It makes the person upset that you've called them a racist and you can't do that. You know, well, yeah, but what you did was racist. You know, how do we characterize it if we can't call it when we see it? And, what and, can and we do apart challenge. from trying to talk to people that would be outside of our normal group or not as close to us to get feedback? Any other things to like become more aware of the biases that we have? Yeah, I think we can learn about other people's stories. Um, sometimes yeah. sometimes that could be as much as 
you know, getting together with a group of people who are different from you and just sharing your personal stories um, to really get a deeper understanding of what it's like from that perspective. Um, sometimes it's a matter of really um, studying, you know, research or history. Uh, you know, for example, if we look at what's going on in the United States right now around um, around the virus, um, we're, what we're seeing is there's almost twice the level of fatalities in the African-American community per capita as there are in the white community. Well, um, you know, people look at that and, and for me and say, well, why is that? So you go out and you begin to study how systemic racism in our culture contributes to that, how it is that, you know, income disparities and health disparities create comorbidities that make African-Americans more susceptible, how it is that, you know, more African-Americans live in dense urban environments where pollution levels are higher, which consider, contribute to various kinds of lung disease, which makes them more susceptible. And so we begin to see this isn't a personal phenomenon. It's given by this historical framework and this cultural and, and um, social framework. So um, I think that, that, you know, that if we really do want to understand people, then we need to put, put some effort into doing it. I think that the other thing is that um, one of the reasons I continue to work it with the, in the workplace around these issues is because I think, I, I think um, our, our work environments are huge opportunities um, for us to do this because um, because work is one of the few places where you don't get to choose everybody you engage with. You know, you and I come to work together and our boss says, two of you work on this project together. You and, we may not like each other, but we got to make it work because both of our jobs are at stake. And, and, and we know that, um, that having a shared uh, goal um, is, is one great way to bring people together. Back in the 1960s, there was a sociologist named Elliot Aronson who was working in, in the States here in Austin, Texas, in an environment where there'd been school, um, um, desegregation. So, so students who were white and, and of color were working together and going to school together for the first time. And he created, um, what he called the jigsaw experiment. And that is he would put these mixed groups of kids together and he would give them a task. They put it together, a jigsaw puzzle, and it was a competition. So they had a reason to win. And may, I think they, he may have even had prizes, if I remember. And, and what he found was he could, he could try to teach them to understand each other all day long, but in, none of it was as effective as just saying, y'all have to work together to get this done. And, and they put away their differences and kind of rolled up their sleeves and got the job done together. And, and we see this at work a lot, that one great way is put people together and they will start to rely on a best qualities of each other because they have to in order to, to survive. Now, it'd be great if we could do that more consciously as a society. And right now we look at this and as we said at the beginning, you know, if we really look at this now, we say the only way we're going to get out of this is if we all work together. And, um, you know, rather than, you know, people in the United States trying to blame China or China trying to blame us, I'm not saying that people do anything's wrong in both places. But the more important thing is let's put that stuff aside right now and, and you know, getting collaboration with each other and see if what you're learning and what we're learning and what they're learning in Denmark and what they're learning in Brazil and what they're learning in, you know, all these different parts. Let's see that collective knowledge would be much more effective for all of us than any of our individual knowledge. I agree. For me, I've seen sport as well. is something that also yes. brings people together on like different social classes and so on. I think it's very much that working towards the goal as you're saying would work. Yeah, I think sports could do that. I think I think sports also is a, it can be a healthy outlet for our tribalist instincts. You know, I'd rather see people rooting for the New York Yankees over the Boston Red Sox than I would see people rooting for white people over black people. You know? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, so. I agree. Yeah. So, Howard, time is running. Yeah. Where can people learn more about you? 
Um, that's good. Thank you. Well, they can go to howardjross.com, right, the website, or um, they can reach me at howard at udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A.com, which is my personal email, and people are welcome to send me a personal email. I'm, um, I'm pretty active on Facebook and, and, um, and on LinkedIn as well. You can find me on LinkedIn. So Great. I'll make sure to link to that. Before we round off, any last advice for the listeners for how to live a healthy, happy, and meaningful life? Yeah, well, I, I think that you know, my advice at this moment in time where we are is for us to really look at how we can use this period of um, social and physical separation to reset ourselves. You know, what are we, what world are we going to come out of this into? Um, you know, at times in life, you have an opportunity to uh, take a vacation, a recess, to stop and pause and say, I know there are a lot of people I've been talking to who say, for example, that, you know, they've been working like crazy. They've been on the treadmill and now having been forced to stop, they realize, wow, I love the fact that I can have dinner with my children every night. And I love the fact that my whole life isn't about work right now. And um, can I incorporate some of that back rather than just going back to the same thing? And I think similarly, um, even though we know that there are uh, different impacts in different environments, I think what this virus is teaching us is all human beings are susceptible to similar kinds of things. And, and you know, when you look at Boris Johnson being in the hospital, you know, and, and at the same time, poor people, you know, we, we see. And, and so the to remember that we are as human beings all in this together to a certain degree and to reach out across the, the boundary, even if it means as you're walking six feet or 10 feet away from somebody going to the grocery store and they've got a mask on and you've got a mask on to say good morning, to remember that we're human beings there and not let this separate us even more. I will make sure that gets out as well. Thank you so much, Howard. Great. Thank you. Thank you. It's been delightful. I really appreciate it. And, and you know, blessings to you and, and please stay safe and be well. Same. Thank you so much, Howard. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.